We are going to be in Philippians chapter 3 this morning, Philippians 3 verses 1 through 11. So if you've got a Bible, get over to Philippians 3. This past summer, our family went to a little amusement park with some friends. It's a place called Fun City. Uh, I imagine there are a thousand such places throughout the United States. Uh, Fun City had uh, go-karts and bumper cars and bumper boats and video games and all kinds of fun stuff for the kids. We were there with a group uh, where the kids ranged from, you know, two or three years old all the way up into the teen years. And uh, if you've ever been to a place like this, you know that at every ride that you go to, before you can enter the ride, there's a little measuring stick that says you got to be this tall in order to ride. It's usually 48 inches or 52 inches or whatever it may be. Uh, this place had those measuring sticks at every single ride. And um, it, in fact, some of the rides had a, a stick that would say, you got to be this tall in order to ride, and you got to be this tall in order to drive, right? So the go-karts, you had to be a certain height to ride, certain height to drive. Uh, well, there was one kid, one boy in our group that was consistently just barely too short to be able to drive on any of the rides. So the first time on the go-karts, it wasn't that big a deal for him. He rode on a go-kart with his dad. He had a fun time. The second time it happened on the bumper cars, when he noticed that he was maybe half an inch too short to drive a, a bumper car, you could just see the look of hurt and indignity across his face. Uh, by the third time it happened, and he had to ride in a bumper boat with another kid who was only maybe a year older because he was just barely too short. He began to cry because every single ride that he went to, there was a visual reminder that he didn't measure up, that he was too short, that he couldn't get in. The standard that they were using of measurement, he consistently fell short every single time. You're too short. I wanted to say, man, it's a story in my life, kid, like everywhere in my life, not quite tall enough. Right, and, and he, he grieved in his childhood way because he didn't measure up. I really thought about halfway through the day, maybe we should spike his hair or something just so he could get into something and be able to drive. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling. If you can, for just a minute, access some time in your life when you had that feeling of, I'm not good enough. I don't measure up. Right? I'm not smart enough to get into this school. I'm not good enough to get onto this team. I'm not far enough along in my career or wealthy enough to fit with this club. Whatever it is, access that time in your life where you said, I want to measure up, but I don't. We've all had those moments. And I think we have that deep desire to measure up, to be accepted, because I think ultimately we want to know that we're okay. We want to know that we're accepted. And I think we want to know that we're not only accepted by people, I think ultimately we want to know that we're accepted by God. I think there's something in us that wants to know that we have a certain status of acceptance, not just with the people around us, not just by way of the fickle standards of measurements that people use, but instead we are acceptable to God in a permanent way. 
But the, the question that we have, when we ask that question, how can I be acceptable to God? I think the question we often have is, what measuring stick does God use? If you were to walk up toward God and you were looking for acceptance and he had one of those measuring sticks, what would be the standard of measurement? What would be the units of measurement? They wouldn't be the same as the ones that we use, would they? But I think all too often we approach God as if they were. If I can just work hard enough, if I can be in the right club, if I can be good enough, then I will be acceptable not only to people, but to God. That question of what makes us acceptable to God, that is a critical question for all of us. In fact, it may be the critical question for all of us. How can I know that I have an accepted status with God? And if I'm talking to you or you're talking to me, how do you know that I'm accepted by God? How can you possibly know where I stand with God? And so often what we do is we create standards that are not those of the Scripture. This question of whether we're acceptable to God, this was a key question for the first century church. It was, again, maybe the question for the first century church. And here's why. Because if you were a Jewish person living in the first century and you wanted to ask the question, how can I know that I am on God's team? How can I know that I'm one of God's people, that God accepts me? You would ask that question and there would be a measuring stick that you were accustomed to using that was fairly simple, at least in terms of knowing who was in and who was out. That measuring stick was called the law of Moses. So if you were a Jewish person in the first century, you could look at the law of Moses and you could say, okay, in order to be accepted by God, in order to be a part of our group, here are the things you need to do. Okay, if you were a Jewish person, you had to, you had to be circumcised. If you were a male, in order to enter the community of faith, you had to follow the law of Moses. You had to keep the purity traditions. You had to eat certain things and wear certain things and go certain places and sacrifice certain things. As long as you were doing those things, you had the assurance that you were in the group of people who you felt were accepted by God. Right? But this posed a problem when Jesus came. Because after the death and resurrection of Jesus, remember Jesus dies for the sins of the whole world. And then Jesus rises again. And after he ascended into heaven, you see in Acts, the Spirit of God begins to come on people who have believed in Jesus. And what's amazing is the Spirit of God doesn't just come to Jewish people, he comes to Gentile people. And so there were Jews and Gentiles who began to believe in Jesus and the Spirit of God comes upon them and then they begin to worship together. But there were Jewish people who had always followed the law. They go, wait, 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 just a second. You can't just come in. We have a measuring stick. We have a standard. And you're not meeting the standard. And they would say, look, Jesus is great. The Jesus thing is great. We're all for Jesus. We believe in Jesus. But you also need to be circumcised. You also need to follow the law. And those who are can be assured not only that they are part of God's people, but they're class A citizens of the kingdom. And so that tension 
works its way through the epistles of Paul, probably most powerfully in the book of Galatians, but you see this thread all the way through Paul's epistles. Here in Philippians chapter 3, we see Paul address this question. What is it that makes us acceptable to God? On what basis can we say that a person is a member of the community of faith? And he's going to say, look, it's not the law. It's not what you do. There's no way that something you do can bring you acceptance before God. But instead, it is what Jesus has done. So that our righteousness before God and then our entrance into the community of faith is based on what Jesus has done and not on the law. Now, as I talk about that this morning, I realize uh, some of you are thinking, you know, this isn't really an issue for me because I'm not ever tempted to go follow the law of Moses. Some of you ate bacon for breakfast this morning and you didn't even think about it, about whether that would exclude you from worship in the church. Neither did you ask your friends this morning when they came in, did you have bacon? Now you may have asked it as a matter of curiosity whether they had any left, (laughs) but you did not ask them it as a matter of will you be included in the body of Christ? You didn't ask that question. We don't follow the law. We as Gentiles, most of us, are very accustomed now to not following the law. So we go, this may not be relevant to me. But I do think that we all have that temptation to create our own measuring sticks and then to say, on the basis of my measuring stick, either I am in and you're out, or maybe not I'm in and you're out, but I'm just better and you're worse. I am more accepted by God. I am a class A citizen of the kingdom. You are a class B citizen of the kingdom. And so we say, because I come to church four Sundays a month and I've only seen you two, I'm better. Because I read the Bible 20 minutes a day and I know verses I can tell you've never read, I'm better. I school my kids in this way. You send your kids to a place I don't approve of. I'm better. Or maybe as I saw on Facebook this past week, uh, you may think, I don't see how anybody who belongs to X political party could possibly be a good Christian. And so you draw that line. And we set up our own measuring sticks by which we judge the spirituality of others and their connection to God. Paul's going to say, no, your, your acceptance before God is only rooted in what Jesus has done. And I realize this raises a question for all of us. The question is then, what is the role of work? Should we just tell people, hey, do whatever you want, think whatever you want, go wherever you want. What is the role of works in the Christian life? If they don't bring me acceptance or favor with God, what do they do? We're going to talk about that question as we move through the passage. But what we're going to see in Philippians 3 is Paul's very strong exhortation that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the basis of our acceptance with God. Because remember, the the book of Philippians, Paul's been saying, pour your life out for the gospel. But there have been people coming in and saying, yeah, pour your life out for the gospel, but you also need to follow the law. Paul says that's a lie. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is sufficient basis for our acceptance before God. Look with me at Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. 
For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. First thing Paul says is this, God does not accept us on the basis of our works. God does not accept us because of our works. Now he begins the passage with a command he will issue several times in Philippians. That command is rejoice. He's going to say, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. And I believe that the basis for his command to rejoice is found in what follows in the, in the verses that follow. Why does he tell us to rejoice? Well, he's not telling us to rejoice because we are good enough, because we've done enough good things and we can say, you know what, I, I know that I'm good enough to be accepted by God. I think he says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord because here's what he's going to tell us. That in Jesus Christ, you have a settled acceptance with God that brings you a joy that cannot be taken away no matter what other people say or think. No matter how you feel on any given day, you have a settled acceptance with God through Jesus Christ. So he says, you rejoice. Think about it this way. If you can, for a moment, consider the days when you were in junior high. If you can do that without too much emotional pain or trauma. Okay, and think about how you went through your days measuring yourself probably against other people. At least I did. Am I as popular as they are? Am I as athletic as they are? Am I as good looking as they are? Am I as smart as they are? And based on that measurement, you would determine some sense of your value. And then that sense of your value would determine your joy for that day. So you would go home and you would feel sad a lot of the time. Or maybe you'd feel really good. I don't know. But you might go home and feel sad. And so you would tell your mom. You'd say, Mom, I feel sad because I don't fit. I am not good enough. I am not handsome enough. I am not smart enough. Right? And what would your mom say? Your mom would say, well, sweetie, I think you're very handsome. And you'd say, that doesn't count because you're my mom. And you have to think that. It's a law. It's a federal law. You have to, right? But what if we had it reversed? What if the settled sense of love and acceptance that many receive from their parents, what if that's a lot closer to the love of God than the fickle love of our friends at school? I think for many of us, as we grow, we begin to realize that that's the case, that there's a peace and a joy that comes from that settled sense of love and acceptance because you're part of the family. So Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. You're part of the family. And then he says, I'm going to write some stuff to you again that I already wrote to you before. It's no trouble for me to write it, and it's a safeguard for you. Even though I've said it before, I'm going to say it again because it's that important. If there are people who are lying to you and saying that your acceptance before God is based on something that you are doing, Look out. And he has three look out commands, watch out commands right here in this passage. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. And watch out for the false circumcision. 
Watch out for the dogs, first of all. Now, there's some irony in this, in this label that he gives to those who are saying, you need Jesus plus the law. He calls them dogs. The reason this is ironic is that the word dogs, the term dogs, was one that Jewish people sometimes used to apply to Gentiles. They would call them dogs. Now, I, I need to clarify this for a moment. Uh, in our day and age, many of us have dogs. We love dogs. You have a dog that you take to the salon. You have its hair shampooed. It sleeps in your bed. For its birthday, you take it to Chili's or whatever. You love dogs. Okay, they didn't love dogs. Dogs were dirty. Dogs ate refuse in the streets. They were filthy. They were nasty. They were like street rats except bigger. They were unclean. And so to call someone a dog was to say, you're impure, you're unclean, you don't fit. That was the label that some of the Jewish legalists would give to those who didn't follow the law. And Paul says, now we're going to flip that around. They're the dogs because they are denying the purity of God given to his people in Jesus Christ. He says, watch out for the evil workers. They come and they say, that they want you to obey the law because that's righteous, but they're, they're evil. And then he says, watch out for the false circumcision, or very literally, the mutilators of the flesh. Because they believe that external rituals are the way to God's favor. But, but external rituals, those who understood the law, understood the law never, ever could provide you acceptance before God. It never did that. It was intended to be a response by those who already had a relationship with God. And the external ritual of circumcision, it was meant to reflect something in your heart. What was circumcision in the Old Testament? It was a sign of the covenant. Remember, Abraham is the first one commanded by God to be circumcised because God had made him a promise that through Abraham, his descendants would bless the world. And so when the Jewish people received circumcision, they were saying, I want to be an heir of God's promises. I want to be a part of God's people, a part of the covenant. But, but the external ritual never was what brought you favor with God or peace with God. It was always what happened on the inside that you trusted in God as a part of his people. And so he says, you watch out for those who say external rituals will do the trick. He says, we're the true circumcision. Those who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and place no confidence in the flesh. In other words, the true circumcision is the circumcision of the heart. The way that you know you're an heir of God's promises is you've trusted in Jesus and the Spirit of God lives in you and changes you on the inside. External rituals never change the inside. But only Jesus does that. Think about it this way. If I were to come up here this morning wearing a long robe and carrying a staff, you might look at me and you might think, that's a wizard, right? But, but I would not actually be a wizard just because I wore a long robe and carried a staff, right? Unless I could do wizard things, unless I could actually perform some magic, then I might be. If I wore a black belt and carried a sword, that doesn't make me a ninja, no matter how much I want to be one. And I do. A few years ago, my son and daughter came into our room and, and he had dressed like this. I don't know how well you can see that, but uh, he is wearing a white coat and he has a stethoscope on 
And he is carrying a blanket, which isn't totally consistent with the theme. But they came in and they said, this is, this is Dr. Samuel Blanket. That was his name. And I thought, man, that's very convincing. He has the white coat. He has the stethoscope. He has a very happy look on his face. I would trust him. But he's not actually a doctor. He doesn't have the medical qualifications. If he came into your operating room and said, I am Dr. Blanket, I'm ready to go, you would have good reason to question his qualifications. (laughs) Putting on the coat and the stethoscope does not a doctor make. It's just the outside. Paul says here in Philippians 3, changing the outside will never bring you peace with God. God doesn't accept us because of our works. He says, we put no confidence in the flesh. That is the outside, these works of the flesh. And he says, if anybody, by the way, has a reason to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. In other words, he says, look, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I am very righteous by Jewish, Jewish standards, so you should listen to me. Paul says, I got them topped. Let me give you my pedigree when it comes to the flesh. If we're gonna start comparing resumes of the flesh, Paul says, mine wins. He says, first of all, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That was a requirement. Leviticus 12, if you had a baby in the nation of Israel, but on the eighth day, you would take that child and have it circumcised. Again, as a sign of the covenant. Paul says, I I had that. He says, I'm of the nation of Israel. In other words, I am a native Israelite. I wasn't born somewhere else and then moved here. I was born here. I'm of the nation of Israel. Think about it this way. If you were talking to your neighbor this afternoon and he says, where are you from? And you say, I am from Texas, born and bred in Texas. I've lived here all my life. You say, where are you from? And you say, I have lived in Texas for 20 years. Where were you born? I was born in Tulsa. You put your house on the market, right? You're ready to move because he's not a native Texan. All right, Paul says, my credential is I'm a native Israelite of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was a prominent tribe. The first king, King Saul, came from Benjamin. The temple actually was in the jurisdiction of Benjamin. It was an important tribe. A Hebrew of Hebrews. What is he saying? My parents spoke Hebrew and not Greek. There were Greek-speaking Jews, and then there were Hebrew-speaking Jews. The Hebrew-speaking Jews were considered more Jewish. Paul says, I'm one of them. Says, that's the, the pedigree I was born with. Now, none of that was stuff that he decided on, was it? It was all stuff really that his parents decided on. When he was eight days old, he didn't look at them and say, circumcision, let's do this, right? They decided it. But he says, you know, it's like us saying, look, I was, I was born into a Christian family. I was raised in the church. I've always believed from the time I was two or three years old. I can't even remember when I trusted in Jesus. That's my pedigree. I come from a Christian home in the Bible belt. Paul says, you want to start comparing credentials. Here's my pedigree. And then he goes on. He says, not just my pedigree. It's actually what I chose to do then also as a, as a grown-up. He says, as to the righteousness that is in the law, I was a Pharisee. Pharisees were those who followed the law most scrupulously. In fact, their name probably comes from a word that means holy or pure. 
They were set apart for the purposes of obeying the law. They were the standard. They were the ones that you would say, if I want to follow the law, I need to be a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In other words, he says, look, I believed so strongly in the value of the law that it was for the Jewish people and that God's promises were for the Jewish people that when the gospel begins to spread, he said, I persecuted the church because I thought it was a threat to the holiness of God. And he says, as to the righteousness in the law found blameless. He says, nobody look at Paul and say that, that he was not following the law. That's his pedigree. And you say, well, I don't, I don't have that stuff. I don't follow the law. I didn't grow up in a Jewish home. But, but you and I have our pedigrees, right? So, so this week I was thinking, if I were to list it out, what's mine? It might look something like this. Born to Christian parents in the United States of America, in Texas. Taught about Jesus. I was taught about Jesus from a young age. I went to church at a Bible church most of my life. I used to lead worship at a church. I went to seminary. Now, this is interesting. I was thinking about it this week. Uh, when I was in seminary, I actually... I won a, an award for preaching this passage. I have a certificate in my office for preaching on this passage. So if you want to compare Philippians 3 pedigrees, I win. Right? And you, you say, look, I, I've, got, I've got a pedigree. I know the Bible. You come to church every week. You have a quiet time every day. Maybe your pedigree is based on things you don't do. I don't drink or eat certain things, and others do. Maybe it's based on the way you conduct your family or raise your kids. I don't let my kids do this, and they do. Maybe it's based on some political position. How could anybody who says they believe in Jesus vote for that person or that person? And so we create a pedigree by which we judge other people. And elevate ourselves. And Paul says, anybody who says that you earn more favor before God or you become a class A Christian on the basis of what you do, what club you belong to, they're lying. God doesn't accept us because of our works. So how does he accept us? Well, he goes on, he says, God accepts us because of Jesus. Verses 7 to 11, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He says, God accepts us because of Jesus. Here's what he does. He says, all of that pedigree stuff. He says, I have moved it from the gain column to the loss column. He says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have actually reckoned as lost. In other words, these are accounting terms. Previously, I considered them a credit to my account. Now I consider them actually a debit to my account. 
And to be clear, he's not saying that, that following the law in and of itself was bad. He's saying that relying on it to bring you favor before God is wrong. And compared to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, he says, I'm going to move it from the gain column over to the loss column because I trust, I'm tempted to trust in this rather than Jesus. So it becomes a loss. Think about it this way. There may be places in the world where a degree from the University of Texas would be in the gain column, right? Dark, sad, evil places. But then there are places where you might move it to the loss column. Places filled with truth. What was a gain becomes a loss. Paul says, I had all of this stacked up. And I move it over to the lost column, and the reason is this. Because while, while religious practices in and of themselves are not bad, in fact, they are good. God gave them so we can know Him in deeper ways. In and of themselves, they're not bad. It's just that they're dangerous. Because the more I stack them up, the more I begin to rely upon them to say, God must like me better. I must be a class A citizen of the kingdom of heaven and you are class B. And Paul says, because of that, I put all this over here in the lost column compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. As I read this passage this week, I was reminded of Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the pearl in the field. Some of you know this parable. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Why? Because the value of what was in that field was greater than anything else he had. That's what Paul says about the righteousness of God given to us in Jesus Christ. Nothing you will do, nothing you have, nothing you could stack up is as valuable. So he says, I will set all that stuff aside. I would sell that stuff in a heartbeat to be declared righteous by God through Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be declared righteous by God? It simply means that you're declared righteous acceptable, and all your obligations before God have been met. So that when you are evaluated as to whether you will receive eternal life, the standard of measurement is God will say, are you connected to Jesus? Because Jesus provides the righteousness that we require. Jesus died for our sin, for our failure to be righteous. He paid the penalty. And then he rose again defeating the death that we were bound toward in our sin. To give us righteousness when we believe. That's the gospel. If you're in the room this morning and for some reason you are trusting in something that you're doing in order to bring you peace before God, you say, I come to church. I try to be good. I try to think and do the right things. I go to the right places. And if you're trusting in that to bring you favor with God, to bring you eternal life, Paul would say there's nothing you're going to do that's going to bring you favor before God. But instead, you trust in Jesus alone. And if you know Jesus Christ and you're using some measuring stick to say, I'm better than you. God loves me more. I'm earning favor with God based on what I do. Then we need a shift in our perspective. 
And, and the question, again, that I mentioned at the beginning that comes up, well, well, if God accepts me strictly on the basis of Jesus Christ, then what is the value of works? Why are there commands in the Scripture toward obedience, to do what is right, to think what is pure? Right? There's going to be one in Philippians 4, in fact. Why do those commands exist? Here's why. Those are a response to the righteousness that God has given us. That now that God has declared us righteous, He has given us the Spirit of God if we believe in Him. And the Spirit empowers us to reflect and live out the righteousness He has given us for free. Why do we do it? So that we can proclaim God, so we can reflect God, so that we can know Jesus Christ. And because that's what we're made for, is to be God's people. Romans chapter 8 says, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He says, we no longer have to live according to the flesh. But instead, if you believed in Jesus Christ, the very Spirit that raised Him from the dead lives in you, lives in me. So we are empowered toward righteousness in a way we never could be before. As a response of gratitude and trust in our Savior, we're declared righteous and then we move toward practical righteousness, not to earn God's favor, but because we already have it and we want others to see it. So Paul says, compared to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, all that other stuff, he calls it scubala, or, or your translation may say rubbish. Some older translations say dung, which is much closer to the meaning of the word scubala. It's a very strong word for human excrement. So use your imagination. I won't fill it in for you. But he says, compared to the righteousness of Christ. That's what all this pedigree stuff is. If you are a friend of mine on Facebook, you may have seen this week, I posted this photo. This is a rock in my office. Uh, it is shiny. It is golden colored. It is not gold. If it were, my life might look somewhat different. This is iron pyrite. It's what's called fool's gold. And fool's gold, it's interesting, it's called that because it has fooled people. In fact, uh, in the early days of people exploring the new world, exploring uh, where we now live, people were fooled by it. In fact, uh, there were people from Jamestown who sent uh, tons of this stuff back to England to say, hey, look, the new world is filled with gold. Send us more money and people and we'll send you more of this. And people were tricked by it. I saw um, years ago an episode of Little House on the Prairie. I was watching it with my daughters. I've seen the, the whole canon multiple times. And there was this episode where Laura Ingalls and a friend of hers go down to a creek and in the creek they see some sand that is shiny like gold. And they go, we found gold. And so they go get a screen door from somebody's house and a wheelbarrow and they begin to pan for gold. They sift out the dirt and they gather all of this, this shiny stuff and they have a huge wheelbarrow of it and they keep it a secret because they don't want anybody else to see their stash of gold. 
And you know where this is going. They finally, after several weeks, they take it into town and they take it to somebody who, who they want to sell it to. I think it's the banker or somebody like that. And he looks at it and he goes, I got bad news. It's hidden gold. It's fool's gold. You've wasted your time. And Paul says, if I invest my life trying to earn God's favor through what I do, through the clubs I belong to, and I create my own little measuring sticks for righteousness, I'm chasing fool's gold. I'm chasing stuff that in the grand scheme of eternity won't buy me God's favor. And I've misunderstood the point. So Paul says, I want to know the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ because God accepts me because of what Jesus has done. And then he's going to go on, he's going to say, these are my goals. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. He's going to say, I want to know Jesus better because it's through him I have righteousness. I want to understand in a deeper way the power of his resurrection, that is the spirit of Jesus Christ who lives in me. And then I want to look forward to eternity. He, when he says, in order that I may somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead, he's not expressing uncertainty about whether he will attain to the resurrection from the dead. Instead, he's saying, I don't know how it's going to happen, but in some mysterious way, God will take the righteousness of Jesus and apply it to a wretch like me, and I will rise from the dead. And so he says, I want to dig into that. That's what I want to know. That's how I want to spend my life, chasing after the real gold. So let me close then with a question. Are you and I trusting in Christ's righteousness or in our own? As I mentioned earlier, uh, are you certain that you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone? Or is there something that you think, hey, I'm going to be good enough. I'm going to be smart enough. I'm going to do something that will earn God's favor. So when I stand before God, I can say, hey, I was good enough. If, if you are thinking that, the only message this morning I want you to hear is that the only way you can know you have eternal life and righteousness and forgiveness of sin is by trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. But then secondly, if you know Jesus, are you, are you creating your own measuring sticks of righteousness? To say, I'm better, I'm more accepted, I feel more confident on the basis of what I do or where I belong. Or do you say, no, I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, his righteousness, because that's where acceptance with God and life is found. Let's pray and then we'll close in worship. Father, we're grateful for the morning. I pray we would not create our own standards of righteousness. I pray we would not grab some standard of righteousness that we feel we ought to enforce upon ourselves and others, believing that somehow we can earn your favor. Instead, I pray that our obedience would be from a heart of gratitude toward you. Father, I pray that we would live in the joy of being fully accepted by you through Jesus Christ. That we would sing of it and worship you because of it and proclaim it until the day we see you again and see your son Jesus face to face. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.